The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is the word of the Lord. We are at the beginning of the end of our series in 1 Corinthians. We have been in, in this book for about nine months now, actually 10 months. Um, and as we've made this our way through the book, Paul, the guy who's writing, he, he's touched a wide variety of topics um, where the Corinthian church needs some, some instruction. And many of these topics would be considered very controversial as to Paul's original audience, but also controversial to us as we're reading them here. And if you do a survey over the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you see that, that there isn't much that Paul hasn't talked about yet. He's talked about marriage and divorce, singleness and sex, the destructive and divisive tendencies of pride and the wisdom of man. He's talked about how to live in a pagan culture and how to represent Jesus well. He's talked about spiritual gifts, church order, church discipline, and the Lord's Supper. He's talked extensively on love, and then in the apex of his letter, Paul talks about the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just when you thought Paul had hit all the controversial topics, he drops one last bomb on his way out. He wants to talk about money, and specifically about giving money away. And I realize that this isn't a particularly popular topic. I have a hunch that nobody woke up this morning thinking, man, you know what would just, mm, just get to my heart would be a sermon about money. Nobody, nobody thought that. Nobody thought, oh, I just, I can't wait to give my money away. You know, and, and if you did think that, bless your soul, but you're, you're definitely in the minority, I think. And so nobody likes to talk about money. It makes people uncomfortable. And as I'm talking about money, as I'm talking about talking about money, some of you may be repositioning your weight over your wallet so you know it's not going anywhere. Or you've, you've accidentally kicked the mouth of your purse shut as you cross your legs. Because we don't like to talk about money. It makes us uncomfortable. And I have a confession for you that I don't like to talk about money. I don't want to preach about money. In fact, I probably told my, my wife every day this week that I really don't want to approach this text and preach it. I would rather pretend that money doesn't exist. I would rather ignore the subject altogether. And I definitely don't want to be the guy, you know, that guy who stands up on stage and tells you to give and give when I personally have a hard time giving. So, but as much as we want to ignore money and, and just kind of push it off to the side, we, we can't afford to do that. It's an essential resource for daily life. In fact, we need it to... For a place to live, our rent or our, our mortgage requires money to pay that. For our food, requires money. For our clothes, for our basic necessities, almost everything that's a basic necessity requires money except for sunshine and fresh air. So we see that money isn't important, and it's, it's even more important part of the Christian's life. Jesus talked about money a lot. 
in 11 of the 39 parables, Jesus talked about money, wealth, or treasure. In one of seven, one out of seven verses in the Gospel of Luke is devoted to money. Jesus talked about money often. In fact, the only thing that Jesus talked about more than money was the kingdom of God. So we can see that money is important to Jesus because there is a fundamental connection between what we believe about God and what we do with our money. Now, some of you might not buy into this. You mean, well, money is separate from God. You know, I get to control, you know, my, my pocketbook's mine, my, my wallet's mine. I get to do it with what I want. But, but that's not the case, really, because the, the way you act with money shows us, really, what you believe about God. If you're stingy, if you're stingy with your money, that could very well tell us that you think God is stingy towards you. If you are a habitual squanderer of money, if you spend money on unnecessary luxuries for yourself, then you could very well be forgetting about how generous and how selfless Jesus was toward you. If you are reluctant to give, if you wait till everyone else steps forward to meet a need, then you might believe that Jesus wasn't willing and eager to give himself up for you. These are just a few examples of how money can point to our gospel issues. Because what the gospel does, the gospel makes us generous people, makes us generous givers, not just in the amount that we give, but in the manner, in the way which we give. So that's kind of where we're headed. We're going to talk about money, and it's, it's a huge topic. It's really a, a huge topic because it's a huge part of our life. So I can't really cover everything this morning in our short time uh, that you need to know about money, um, but I do want to make a couple of resources available to you and point them out to you so you can continue this conversation with your, your husband or your wife or your family or your missional community with your kids. It's important to teach our kids to be generous because of what the gospel does. So the first one I want to I offer up to you is this book that is appropriately called Money. It's a book about money. Uh, we give this book to all, all the people who are going through the membership process at Sacred City Church. Um, this book has been incredibly beneficial to me. In fact, my copy that I have in my bag is literally covered with ink on every page, of highlights, underlines, notes off to the side. It's incredibly valu- valuable resource in helping shape a gospel mindset of money. Uh, and the other one that I want to point out to you is, is back by the bookstore. Um, it's called... The Treasure Principle is written by Randy Alcorn. That's for sale. But this one, this book here, we want to give to you. So if you don't have a copy of this book at home, uh, I think we'll have a, a box of, of them to give away if, if you don't have that. So please, please use these resources. Please grab them and, and learn from them because there is a lot, a lot to learn from them. So, but, but with our time this morning and as we look at, at these four verses... My goal is to show you that the gospel really does produce radically generous people and and radically generous people who give with the purpose of of promoting the gospel, of expanding the gospel. But to land at that conclusion, we need to do a little bit of studying. So open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verses 1 through 4. If, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use your app. There's a Sacred City app or uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's some Bibles on the floor that we want, we want to give you a Bible so you have a Bible to look at. So open up there, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, and we'll read it, verse 1. Here it says, Now concerning the collection 
for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. So you also are to do. And before we get too far in this passage, it's important for us to know that this collection that we're talking about today, that Paul's organizing, it's an it's an additional collection to their tithes and offerings. This, is, this goes beyond their gift to God and to the local church. So this, this is a whole different topic than, than your tithes. And this is a collection that Paul is organizing, and, and it's actually quite a, pre, a pretty significant part of his ministry from uh, the years 52 to 57 A.D. There are hints of this collection scattered throughout the New Testament, Romans 15, Acts 11, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and basically what's happening here is Paul has been calling up all his contacts, the guys that, that he's partnered with in planting churches in various cities so that they can distribute resources to the saints. And before we can answer why this collection is so important to Paul, we have to ask, who does this collection involve? And in verse 3 and in other passages that are related to this topic, we see that the collection of money is going to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And these guys are poor for a few various reasons. One of the major reasons is that there's a famine throughout that land right now. There, there's a shortage of resources. People are kind of scraping together stuff. Another reason for their poverty is that they, the church in Jerusalem has faced quite a, quite, quite a bit of persecution. You know, people the Jews and, and other officials have come in and, and tried to stop the expanse of the gospel. And, and in doing so, a lot of Christians have scattered. And as they've scattered, the resources have scattered as well. And uh, another thing that could contribute to this, uh, this the poor, uh, poor people in Jerusalem is that there's, there's a lot of taxes in, in Jerusalem. It's a big deal. So there are multiple reasons for this poverty, but the bottom line is that these people in Jerusalem are poor. But not only are these people poor, the majority of these people in Jerusalem are also Jewish. They came from the line of Abraham, and they were considered a part of God's covenant people. So on the receiving end, we have poor Jews in Jerusalem who are in need of money and resources. And this will be significant in a minute, because on the, on the giving end, we have a mix of wealthy and poor Gentiles, people who aren't of Abraham's bloodline. And they're from different cities spread, spread throughout. And these are people who, who really never grew up hearing about God. They never um, were catechized. They never, you know, and more than likely, they came from a pagan or, uh, you know, voodoo sort of worshiping background. But, but when Paul and his buddies would go on their missionary journeys to preach the gospel, these are the type of people that Paul would approach, the Gentiles, the people who weren't part of God's people. And he would go and he would preach, and as, as they preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit uh, would regenerate the hearts of these Gentiles. He would, they would be born again, that, that they would believe that Christ died for their sins in accordance with Scripture, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And, and in doing so, that that they now had a new life, that they were no longer just Gentiles, that they were Christian Gentiles. They were now also part of God's people. And the thing is, between Jews and Gentiles, they weren't really tight. They weren't buddies. The Jews had a lot of pride in the fact that they were God's original people. They thought that they were a cut above everyone else, and they treated others like that as well. This is what we would consider racism. You know, and racism is not a new thing. People have been thinking that they are better than other people based upon their nationality 
for a long time, and this is not okay. This is an evil thing. But because of this bias, Jewish Christians were reluctant to accept the Gentiles as part of their faith, as part of God's people. Because, and this is attributed to to the fact that they had a skewed, these Jewish Christians had a skewed view of the gospel. They thought it was that their faith in Jesus plus their ability to uphold God's law. They thought it was Jesus plus their ability to be good people would save them. But that is not the case. And they were, but the Jews were used to this mentality because growing up they were trained that they, they were to do good works, that they were to live up to God's law. And when they heard the gospel of grace, it was completely and radically foreign to them. It was like a whole new faith, essentially. They thought in order, the Christian Jews, they thought in order for the Gentiles to be saved, they needed to fall in line with Jewish customs and culture, which went beyond the call of the gospel. So they started saying things like, well, you aren't saved unless you don't eat pork. You aren't saved unless you give up pork chops and bacon and all the things that pigs produce that are delicious. And they thought, you know, if you're not really a Christian unless you're circumcised. And, and this rubbed the Gentiles the wrong way because the gospel that they heard was that it wasn't by their works. It wasn't by anything that they did in which they were saved, but it was by grace through faith in Christ. So as the, the Christian Gentiles felt this pressure that the Jewish Christians were putting on them, the, the Gentiles weren't really into, and they weren't really into doing those things because it, it went beyond the call of the gospel. And this caused a lot of tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were all like, well, you keep your bacon away from our potlucks. And, and the Gentiles are all like, well, you keep your pocket knives away from our loincloths, which which would make for a lot of very uncomfortable church picnics, as you would imagine. And, and we can joke about this because we are pretty far removed from this situation, but, but the thing is that we need to know that this, this division is a reality, that there was a real barrier here. Jews and Gentiles thought of themselves as completely different people, much like males consider themselves different from females, or masters consider themselves different from their slaves. There's a major issue of division that prevented unity in the church, both locally and globally. So when Paul, when Paul heard that the Jewish Christians were in financially tough times, he saw this as an opportunity to grow and to strengthen and to expand the gospel through the generous giving that is produced by the gospel. This is why Paul is so determined to get this collection together for the church in Jerusalem. He wanted to show the Jewish Christians that the gospel was at work among the Gentiles, and it was bearing fruit. The generous giving uh, of the predominantly Gentile congregations was Paul evidence, Paul's evidence of the validity of Galatians 3, 28 through 29, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This means that God's people are no longer limited to the bloodline of Abraham, but that anyone who is in Christ, anyone who puts their faith in Christ, no matter what your nationality, is now made part of God's people. This was an essential message that had to be understood if the church was going to be effective 
at the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations and of all nationalities. And this is why the topic is so important to Paul. The future of the church, excuse me, the future of the church, the expansion of the gospel would be deeply impacted by the unification or the division of the Jews and Gentiles. And Paul viewed, Paul viewed money as a tool for which to unify and to strengthen and to expand the gospel and the church. So that's the first point that I want you to know, is that money, when rightly used, is a tool for expanding, expanding and strengthening the church, for, for the expanse of the gospel. And just like money is a, was a tool back then for expanding the gospel, it's a tool for us right now. It's very much a tool for us right now. And one of the ways that we, one of the primary ways that the gospel expands is through church planting. And that takes, that takes a significant amount of money. You're, after all, you're taking a family, taking a guy, and you're, you're pulling him out of his, his work, and, and he's going to go, and he's going to get trained. He's going to maybe go to seminary or do an internship or a residency somewhere and get trained up in the ministry, and that's going to take money. And then they're going to send him to a city, and they're going to have him preach the gospel and tell people of the good news of Jesus. But to do that, that takes money because he's got he's to have a house, a place to live, a place to be hospitable and bring people in and invite them to be part of his family and God's family. And then, and then there's the cost of having a place to gather, a sound system. They've got lighting. They've got bills to pay. They've got to pay for a website. There's all these expenses that go into planting a church. And that's just the church plant because hopefully... It goes beyond that. Hopefully the church takes root after all this money is invested in the church plan. The church takes root and people are being introduced to Jesus and they're learning to live in the gospel. And then these people who hear the gospel begin ministering to their non-believing neighbors and coworkers and friends. And then they're brought into community, living in community and on mission. And before long, the church plant is no longer a church plant, but it becomes an established church with with appointed elders and deacons and, and, and the ministry. And, be, and then that church becomes a sending church, that from within that church, they send out more church planters. And this all takes money. And as the church grows, as, as God's family increases, there's more people to minister to. There's more saints to equip for the ministry. And so there, there becomes a need for administration. There becomes a need for more people to, to train others for the ministry, train all of us for the ministry. So we need, we need an administration. We need people, we need assistance. We need more counselors. We need more pastors. And that takes money, right? But it, it's all money well spent because, because in this scenario, money is no longer just a monetary device. Money is transformed and redeemed into a tool that, that creates something that has eternal value, as people are coming to know Jesus as their Savior and as people are becoming welcomed into the family of God, that is money well invested. And guys, our, our church is, is entering a season like this. We're kind of turning out of the, the church planting seasons where we've been around for three years now. We're starting to expand. We've got We've got more and more people we're trying to minister to and equip for the service of the saints and, and through ministry. And, and this is a reality because, because we're radically committed, as a church, we're radically committed to the, to the expansion of the gospel, of making disciples and planting churches. 
So as a church, as a church who's devoted to these things, we need money to continue on in the ministry. We need, we need generous givers to rally behind the mission of God. And if you're rolling your eyes thinking, oh, yeah, here we go. Here he goes. Just another church all about the money. I want to assure you we're not that church. We, at Sacred City, we rarely talk about money. And that might be to a fault, but, but that's, we're, not after, we're not after your money. We're not like the, uh, there's a show on Oxygen called, I don't know if anybody watches that. It's kind of a bad network. But there's a show on TV called The Preachers of L.A. And, and basically they take these, the lifestyle of six preachers who are, who are devoted to the prosperity gospel and, and they follow them around, and they're going through their $3 million homes and showing people their, their garages full of classic antique cars. And the pastors are like, why, why shouldn't we make a ton of money? You know, like, but that's not what we're after. We're not after trying to exploit people. We're not after trying to have a congregation full of incredibly poor people because they're giving all their money away so the pastors can have these nice things and so that they can be on food stamps and, and taking the bus around town. That's not what we're after. When we, when we talk about money, it isn't to guilt you into giving. It isn't, isn't to try to generate some sympathy. We're calling you to be part of God's mission in planting churches and establishing churches so the gospel can expand. So more people can live in community and on mission with us. That takes resources. But, you know, I get it. Some people are like, oh, I don't want to give to the church. And, and that's, honestly, that's a gospel issue. And, and I think the Lord will work that out with you as, as you live in community and on mission. But, but if you're in that point, you don't need to not be generous because you don't want to give to the church. You can be generous with your resources, with your money, in your normal, everyday life. You can use your money as a tool personally for ministering to other Christians and to being on mission towards your non-believing friends. And you have to get a little creative, but there are all, all kinds of things you can do to be generous. For example, next time you go out with your coworkers, pick up the tab. You're like, whoa, why, why are you paying for my food? You know, we make the same amount of money. Why are you picking up my tab? If you have people over to your home, offer your guests Quality food and drink. Nobody wants to come over and eat macaroni and cheese and drink Milwaukee's Best Light. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Give them good food. Give, give your guests the comfy chair. Let them have the best seat in the house. Give them the biggest piece of cake. Give them the best dessert. Your toilet paper. Don't skimp on your toilet paper. When you have people over, Use the good stuff. If you're strapped for cash, you know, keep a, a four-pack tucked away in the closet for the times when you have people over. You can use the stuff, you know, the crummy stuff on your own. Throw parties often. Have a lot of parties. Open up your home. Give away, well, Halloween's coming. Give away good candy. Don't give away, like, the Almond Joys and the, you know, what, the, the Whoppers. Nobody likes that junk. Give away the good candy. Be creative, guys. There's, there are many multiple ways to be generous. And I realize that money doesn't grow on trees. Some of us lack an abundance of cash. I get that. I'm, I'm in that, that group of people. But so, 
So in that case, we're, I'm less or we're less able to give globs and globs of cash. But there are lots of different ways to be generous without giving money. The gospel, no matter, no matter what your financial status, the gospel will still make you a generous person. And we can see that in mowing someone's lawn, just doing it as a favor. You can see that in raking leaves or offering to help your neighbor paint his garage. Offer to babysit your neighbor's kids for free. There are multiple ways. Have people over to play board games or watch the TV. God has given you resources. You can use those as, as ministry tools. So do that. That promotes generosity. But let me ask you, like all these things, are you, are you a generous person? Are, are you a giver or are you a taker? Do you, do, are you generous with your money and your resources or do you hold on to those things for yourself? Do you give in a way that makes your friends and your neighbors say, oh, wow, what's going on? Why is he giving away his money? Why is he being so generous? Why is he offering so much to me? Because this is the type of people that the gospel creates. Do you give eagerly? Or does it come when it's time to write, write that tithe check or, or submit your e-giving? You just go, oh boy, here we go again. Another time, another hit. You give eagerly. I think when we answer these questions honestly, the majority of us, and myself included in this camp, would answer, no, I'm, I am not a generous person. Maybe we can point to a few times where we gave something away or a, a couple of rare instances where we wanted to give a, cut a big check, but, but generosity just doesn't come naturally for most of us. Some of us it does. Some of it's, it's a gift where you just open your home and you pour out and you give, 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 and I praise God for people like that. But for most of us, this isn't, we don't live a generous lifestyle. And, and if we aren't generous people, then that makes us greedy people. There's no in-between. There's no, there's no continuum. It's either you're, you live a generous lifestyle or you're greedy. Look, and here's the thing. Nobody, nobody thinks they're greedy. You know, when I say we're greedy, you're thinking, oh, the guy next to me or my neighbor, he's a greedy guy. If we're not generous, then we're greedy. And nobody wants to be viewed as a greedy person. Nobody wants that label placed on them. So the question is, how do we become a generous person? How do we kill the greed that's inside of us? How does generosity become a part of who we are? And I think in our passage today, Paul, he's going to lay out um, four principles that will help us become generous people. And, And here they are, four The first one is that we give regularly. The second one is that everyone gives. This is an inclusive thing. And third, we kill our our greediness by giving sacrificially. And finally, our giving is motivated by the gospel. That's how we kill our greed. And I want to unpack these four things. So in our passage, if you're looking uh, here at verse 2, our passage, um, this is what Paul says. He says, On the first day of every week, on the first day of every week, this is a weekly routine. 
This is not an occasional, not an end of the year tax write-off thing. This is a regular routine for Christians. And when we make something a rhythm in our lives, it becomes part of us. It becomes part of us. It grows us, and we learn to enjoy it, okay? I've got an example of this. I'm going through a rough patch um, in my, let's say, in my workout habits. Um, I used to work out pretty regularly three or four times a week, um, and, and honestly, I'm not much of a fitness guy. I don't really get fired up about sweating a lot. Um, but I was in a routine. I was doing it, and, and as I was doing it, and I was in a healthy routine, I enjoyed it. Like, I started to enjoy it. Sweating became not so bad. I started to see the, the benefits of it. Started, you know, I don't know if I lost weight, but I started getting stronger, a little bit faster. I felt better. I was in a better state emotionally and mentally. It, it, you know, I got to burn some of my, my energy. But recently, recently I got sick, and I, I spent a little time um, just not feeling very well, and then, then I had a lot of stuff to get done at work, and then I had some stuff at home that came up that I needed to take care of. And so as these things kind of came to the surface, I started uh, sacrificing my workout routine. I started taking a day off here and there, and then before I knew it, my whole entire routine went out the window. I think I've, I'm gone on like a, a month streak of not lifting any weight or running or anything. So I've uh, done away with my routine pretty well. And as my workout rhythms went out the door, as that routine diminished and went away, my, the joy that I had and the, the excitement and, and the benefits of working out also went away. I have a, right now, I have a less optimistic look on working out. It just, it just, once again, it's a chore. It's another opportunity to sweat and to, you know, get nasty and whatever, and I'm just not really into it. And so... So what happened is it was hard for me to see that working out can actually be enjoyable. As I, as I stopped my routine, working out became, the idea of working out is less enjoyable. And the same thing is true about giving. That when we give regularly, we see the benefits of giving. We experience a joy unlike anything else. We get to see how, um, how what we give can make a difference. And the most significant thing that happens is that our heart grows for the people or for the organizations that we're giving to. It's pretty difficult to give consistently and faithfully to someone or to something that ha- and, and be indifferent towards it. So that's the first thing. We give regularly, heart grows towards it. It's, it's good, it's beneficial. Secondly, the principle is that everyone should be giving. Everyone should be giving. Paul says that each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So he's saying... Everyone is included in this activity of giving. It's not just for the wealthy people. It's not just for the people who have a plethora of money. It's for everyone who considers himself to be a Christian, for everyone, rich or poor. So but the question is, why, why, would, why would God call you know, people who have a lot of money who they can give and people who have, have little money, why would he call them both to give? And I think... I think scripture is clear about this. Jesus says that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And there's a, a degree of blessedness that, that we cannot obtain unless we give. There's a special joy that comes from giving. Why would, why would God limit that to just the wealthy people? But here's the thing. Giving looks different between people. 
the wealthy people and the poor people don't give the same amount. It says, give as he may prosper. What he's saying is that you should give in proportion to what you earn. If you make a lot of money, then you should give a lot of money away. If you don't make a ton of money, then you probably won't be able to give a ton of money away. That's just how it is. Give in proportion to what you earn. But nonetheless, everyone is called to give. And the third principle ties in with the second because if you are giving, if you are giving in proportion to your income, then you'll be giving sacrificially. And some of us already know the sacrifice of, of making that tithe. 10% is, is difficult to give for a lot of us. And then on top of that, we're called to live generously too. So it's, a, it's an even larger sacrifice. And, and we're not called to this so we'll be out of money and bumming out on the streets. But we're called to this so that we would know what it was like for Christ to sacrifice himself for us. That we would feel sacrifice. That we would feel... That we wouldn't just give out of our abundance, but we'd give in a way that, that we really feel it. If you are unaffected by your giving, then you probably aren't doing it right. If you're unaffected, if your lifestyle hasn't changed in some way, shape, or form, then you're probably not doing it right. Jesus um, gives an example, or he's telling the story of a, of a widow who gives two coins and he says that this, this widow, this poor widow, and by giving her two coins, is giving more than anyone else has given. Any more, she's giving more than, than the, the guys who have put in large sums of money. Why is this? Well, I think it's because this woman's giving sacrificially. She felt, she felt the, what it took to give. Randy Alcorn says that, that it's not the price of the gift that makes us a generous person. It's what the gift cost us. So if you have a lot of money, it may not, to give away a car may not be a big deal to you. You might have the resource to do that. But if you, if you don't have the resource to give a car, giving two pennies, giving two coins is difficult. But that's the type of sacrifice that the gospel calls us to. And in 2 Corinthians, there's a perfect example of this. The church in Macedonia is giving generously and sacrificially, and, and let's check that out. Go ahead and turn. It's a few pages to the right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to see this for yourself. I'm not making this up. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These, these people in Macedonia, these guys are crazy. Here they are in a severe test, an affliction themselves, Paul says they're in extreme poverty, yet they are willing and eager to give according to their means and far beyond. They're giving sacrificially, and they're thrilled to do so. This is because this is what the gospel produces. The gospel produces sacrificially generous people. 
Look, and I would be feeding you a line, saying, hey, the only, all you got to do to be generous, you know, everybody give, everybody give often, everybody um, give sacrificially. I'd be feeding you a line to say that, that you could do that, if you, you could keep that up. Because as you start to give, as you're being more generous, you'll start to see your bank account slowly decrease, maybe, maybe drastically decrease. And then you'll see resources starting to be used and, and all these things. And, and as you see those things, if you don't have the right motivation, if you don't have the right um, reason for giving, then your desire to be generous will start to fade. And you're, so to be generous, to be a generous person, we need a motivation that will sustain us for the long haul. And and I want to point out just a couple of ways that people, organizations, have attempted to create a generous people, but their methods prove to be ineffective, and, and, their gen- and eventually people's generosity fizzles out with time. And the first method is guilt. A church or an organization will, will come up, they'll present a, a really poor person, somebody who's, who's in extreme poverty, you know, they'll, they'll tell a story just about how poor they are and their hard life, and... and um, you know, there's probably some strings and some, some pretty sappy music in the background, and people will start to get emotionally wrapped up in this, and tears are welling up in people's eyes, and, and then somebody will come up on stage and say, hey, you could save this person's life with a cup of coffee, you know, with the price of what you pay for a cup of co- coffee every day. You know, and, you know and, and so you hear this, and you think, wow, yeah, I, yeah, I could really give, and, and like, you know, I could help out in that way, but, you know, maybe you weren't. I don't know, maybe you weren't drawn in emotionally. You, didn't, you had tears welling up in your eyes, but you didn't cry. So you didn't give that day. So you go, next day you're on, on your way to work, you stop at the coffee shop, and you're sitting in line, and you're thinking, man, am I, am I killing someone right now for drinking this cup of coffee? Right? Am, am, I, am I harming someone's life? Am I taking away the possibility for someone to flourish right now and having this cup of coffee? And so you think, dang, I gotta go give. So you you go, like maybe it really affects you. So you go and you give and you cut a big check or you commit to, to a, a monthly pledge and you do that, but then there's this lingering sense of guilt. Like, so you're giving now and you're supporting this organization and now next time you go to coffee, you have the same thought. Oh man, am I killing somebody else now? Because somebody else unable to live now because I'm having this cup of coffee, but where does it stop? Where does it stop? Could you eat out? Should you eat out? Or will that, you know, could that be given to charity? Should you buy those new pair of shoes? Or is that going to ruin someone else too? So this produces a, an overwhelming sense of guilt. Did I do enough? Well, you think I could probably do more. And so rather than having a heart for the person or for the organization that you're, you're giving to, you just become obsessed and concerned with shaking the sense of guilt. Your guilt becomes a motivator for giving. So obviously, motivating givers by guilt isn't the best method. Another ineffective yet common method is the appeal that if you give, you'll be a hero. If you give, people will look at you different. People will look up to you. You'll be the one who who can make this world a better place. And so with this, this approach, it's all about how people perceive you, and which is basically just another form of self-preoccupation. And it leads to, to giving for the wrong reasons. I, I want to give so people think highly of me. I want to give, 
I want to give so people think I'm a generous person. They give in for the wrong reasons. And as soon as that person isn't recognized as a generous person, as soon as the emotional high or whatever buzz they have from, from giving, as soon as that fades, they'll typically give less and less till their giving stops. So that doesn't work. So then the question is, how are people moved from greed and self-preoccupation to generous givers? And the answer to that question is in chapter 16, but it's kind of hard to see, so we'll kind of have to unearth it. Paul says that, that they are to collect money on the first day of the week. And this is significant because the first day of the week is Sunday, and what happens on Sunday? Well, Sunday is a, dev- a day that's devoted to remembering, to, to uh, repositioning yourself to see what the gospel has done. Paul says that, that on the first day of the week, when you gather together as a church, on the first day of the week, as you read scripture together, as you hear the preaching of God's word together, as you break bread together, as you pray, and, and all of the things that you do as a church family, as you do those things to remind yourself of the gospel, to be reminded of what the gospel has accomplished for you, that is when you are supposed to give. You are to, to give out of the motivation of what Christ gave for you. And Paul lays this out crystal clear in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This is what he says. He's speaking to the same church here. He says, for you know the grace, you know the gracious generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. Guys, we are spiritually poor. Sin has us completely and utterly impoverished. There would be no budgeting, no wise money management, not even the best get-rich-quick scheme could help us move away from poverty. We are because of our sin, the poorest of the poor. And we are utterly helpless and hopeless. There's nothing that we can do for ourselves to change our status. And Christ is on the other end of this spectrum. He is, Christ is, because of his righteousness, is incredibly and extravagantly rich. In fact, he himself is the riches of heaven. Jesus had more to lose than any of us could ever imagine. You think it'd be tough to give away a large chunk of money. You think it'd be tough to give away your home or your car. Christ gave up the throne of heaven. Gave away everything. Everything. Jesus had the throne of heaven, everything he could possibly want, yet he took his riches and by his grace, his unmerited favor and his radical generosity, he became poor. He traded in his throne in heaven for a body of flesh and blood. In an ultimate display of God's generosity, Christ would give himself up completely as he hung on the cross. Jesus didn't give 10% of himself. He didn't give 15% of himself. He didn't give 90, 95% of himself Jesus Christ gave everything of himself, even his life. 
And in his death, Christ became spiritually poor on our behalf. He bankrupted heaven on our behalf. He took on the ugliness of sin. He took on our selfishness. He took our greed. He took on everything that prevents us from being generous people. And he took that upon himself. And by his generosity, his grace, we have been made rich. Because there on the cross, Luther, what happens is what Luther calls is the great exchange. That Jesus exchanged his riches. Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our poverty, for our sinfulness. And in doing so, by that exchange, we have been made rich. So now, no matter, no matter what your bank account says, no matter the number in your retirement account, no matter what you own, if you believe in the generosity of Christ, that, that Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, and he gave himself up to the death that you deserve, you are rich in Christ. How does that feel? You are rich, not, not monetarily, but spiritually. And as, as we are spiritually rich, God calls us to give to give our, our physical possessions here on earth because what we, what we now have is no longer here on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but it's stored up in heaven where we'll last into eternity. Guys, this, this is the motivation. This is what motivates us to give regularly for us all to give and for us to give sacrificially when we look at Jesus and see what he's given for us. This is what drives us. This is what inspires us to be generous with our money and with our resources. This is what will fuel your faithful and sacrificial giving. That Christ gave up everything so that you could be rich in him. And I, I want to close with this final quote. Um, it's from the book that I referenced earlier, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. I think it's just, I think it's a powerful statement. He says that, Gaze upon Christ long enough, and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough, and you will look more like Christ. Church, this is, this is what I want to call you to. I want to call you, not, not to being generous for generosity's sake. I want to call you to look more like Jesus. I want to call you to look more like Jesus. So when your, when your neighbors and your coworkers experience your generosity, they, are, they have to ask, why? Why are you so generous? How is it that you can give up so much and you can give them the answer? Because Christ gave up everything so that I could be rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, it is, it's incredible to know that we are rich in Christ. It's incredible to know that we are rich, that the poverty and the, and the wants and the needs that we face in this world are temporary, that they're fleeting, that they will eventually fade away, and one day we will be in your kingdom, in your palace, in, in your temple, and we will be supplied with every ounce of wealth and riches in Christ Jesus himself. And I pray, Lord, that that you would make us into a people that, that as we look at Christ, as we see what he has done by his sacrifice, by his generous giving, Lord, that we would be impacted by that in such 
a meaningful and heartfelt way that we can't help but give away our money. We can't help but be generous with the resources we have. We can't help but to lay down ourselves, to lay every resource that we have at our fingertips at your disposable for the purpose of kingdom growth and expansion, for the expanse and the growth of the gospel. Lord God, I pray that you would give us a vision for this church, that you would show us what it looks like to use our money as a tool, to be generous in every way so that we can continue to multiply missional communities, Lord, that, and that as we grow in need as a church, as we need staff and as we need, um, you know, maybe the opportunity for a building will come along, whatever it is, so that we could be, have a per- permanent presence in a neighborhood, Lord, whatever it is, Father God, we ask that you would supply that need. We know that you are the, the giver of all good things, and we, we trust you to give us what we need, and you trust, we trust you to give us what we need so that we can be generous. So Lord, as the gospel, as our motivation, would you change us to be gospel-motivated people? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.